you enjoyed this short little video that is created by the Museum of the Bible and it beautifully and powerfully, creatively portrays the transmission of the scriptures through the centuries. It captures the challenges that could have destroyed its perseverance and preservation as well as the unbelievable impact that this one book has had in shaping individuals, families, and entire nations throughout history. As Cody mentioned, for the past two Sundays, we've been talking about the Word of God and why we can trust it. The problem is we don't always trust the Scriptures. And the reason for these three sermons is because we have a great tendency to doubt the trustworthiness of the Bible. We are immersed in a culture that at best has a self-centered, therapeutic view of the Bible and at worst seeks to wage an all-out war to undermine any confidence people may have in the Bible as the inspired, authoritative, and accurate Word of God. So we need to be reminded that we have unbelievably strong and good reasons to trust this book, the Bible. 
We don't need to be ignorant. We don't have to be simple-minded. We don't have to be uneducated fools to believe that God has truly communicated to us through this book. We need not be timid in the face of difficult questions. Rather, we can have an absolute confidence and great boldness in proclaiming the trustworthiness of the Bible. Anytime that I think about the confidence we can have in the Bible as the Word of God, I think of the quote that's attributed to Charles Spurgeon that says, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. The Word of God is like that. The Word of God can stand up to great expert scrutiny. We don't have to be embarrassed about it or try to prop it up or hide its difficult parts. No, we have great reason to trust in the Bible. And as we prepare to begin exploring Christ in the Old Testament, we want to lay a foundation of why we can trust the Bible. So over the past two weeks, Pastor Cody has addressed the first two layers, layers of this foundation. First, he reminded us that the truth of the truth that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Last Sunday, Pastor Cody explained how the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Today, we'll be adding a third layer to this foundation as we examine the claim that the Bible is the accurate word of God. We've been walking through the Evangelical Free Church's Statement of Faith article on what we believe about the Bible. As part of the EFCA, we believe that God has spoken through the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors, as the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. The complete revelation of His will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. So the first section of this statement of faith teaches that the Bible is the inspired word of God. The last section teaches that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And the middle section is what we're looking at today. And it claims that the Bible is the accurate word of God. The main point of the message today is that because the Bible is the accurate word of God, we can trust it. There are going to be two main parts to our examination of the accuracy of the Bible this morning. These two parts address the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture and the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The phrase from the statement of faith that says the Bible is without error in the original writings addresses the inerrancy of the Scriptures. And the claim that the Bible is the complete revelation of His will for salvation addresses the sufficiency of Scripture. We'll spend most of our time on the first part and a shorter amount on the last part, the second part. But as we prepare to lay this third and final foundation of the trustworthiness of Scripture, please join me as I lead us in prayer and ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, we praise you for you are kind and gracious, revealing yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the written word, the Scriptures. We praise you for you are sovereign, preserving your word through the centuries so we today could still have an accurate record of what you have written. We come before you and confess that we are prone to doubt. We doubt whether or not we are able to truly trust the Bible. We confess as well that even when we do trust the Bible to be your actual words to us, we neglect to read it and study it. We don't cherish it or devote ourselves to studying the word like we should. And so, Father, we pray that you would forgive us. 
And we thank you, Father in heaven, for the incredible access we have today, not only to your holy word, but to incredible resources that help us better understand the Bible and apply it to our lives. Help us now as we examine the claim that because the Bible is the accurate word of God, we can trust it. Teach us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. Give us appropriate confidence in the Bible and inspire us and fill us with a hunger for your word, not as an end in itself, but as a means to come to know you, our creator, and to grow in our love for you more and more. We pray this through the access made possible by Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising again, and we seek to pray in accordance with his will. Amen. Let's begin by exploring together what we mean when we talk about the inerrancy of the scriptures. Many things could be said related to the inerrancy of the scripture, but I'm going to limit my focus this morning to saying four things related to the inerrancy of scripture. First, the original writings were without error. Wayne Grudem, in his Systematic Theology book, writes, the inerrancy of scripture means that the scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. And he goes on further to explain that this does not mean that the Bible tells us every fact there is to know about any one subject, but it affirms that what it says about any one subject is true. So like many other Christian doctrines, the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture is built upon numerous biblical texts, and so we're going to look at a couple of them briefly. In 2 Samuel seven twenty-eight, we see that King David proclaims that God's words are trustworthy. King David, who wrote many of the Psalms as well, proclaims again and again about how he delights in God's word. But in 2 Samuel 7, he specifically says that God's words are trustworthy. In Proverbs 30, verse 5, we read that every word of God is flawless. In Numbers 23, 19, we're reminded that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. And the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, which claims the original writings of the Bible were without error and trustworthy and true, and all they affirmed, it flows out of a proper doctrine of God. Because God does not lie, we can trust His Word to be true. In John 17, 17, Jesus is praying for His disciples and says to God the Father, Sanctify, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. So here Jesus clearly proclaims the truthfulness of God's self-revelation. His spoken word becomes the written word, and it is entirely true. So the first main point in this section is that the original writings were without error. Secondly, our copies today are not without error. And this is the part that I want to encourage you to listen most closely to because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. According to the book Evangelical Convictions, which is like a commentary on our statement of faith as the Evangelical Preacher to America, it says, our affirmation of the inerrancy of the Bible limits the complete divine superintending of the process to what the biblical writers actually wrote and not to the transmission of the text through the centuries. So another way of saying this is that the church has never claimed the New Testament text has been inerrantly, so without errors, hasn't been inerrantly preserved. 
It has been preserved very, very accurately, but it is not saying that there are absolutely no errors in the process of transmission that has taken place getting us to where we are today. So follow along as I try to unpack this, because while at face value it may seem like I'm undermining our confidence in what we hold and study, that is absolutely not what is happening this morning. I believe, and I hope and pray that you will leave today, especially if you've never um, understood some of these aspects before, that you will leave with an unbelievably greater confidence in the Word of God and be better equipped to have dialogue with people who don't uh, believe that the Word the words of this book are truly from God or are accurate, so we believe they are. So hear me loud and clear on this. Though our copies of the Bible today are not without error, our Bibles today are still accurate and fully trustworthy. Let me say that one more time. Though our copies of the Bible today are not without error, our Bibles today are still accurate and fully worthy of our trust. For some of you, this Information is not new, and, but for others, perhaps you've never fully understood how we got the biblical text that we have today. So allow me to try to briefly explain the process. Much of the biblical text began as oral teachings and traditions that were passed on verbally, and this process was quite incredible, especially to those of us who live in a culture where most everything is written down. We're not in an oral culture, but as you saw in the beginning of that video, it began as this oral communication, oral instruction. Even in the New Testament, Jesus is beginning by teaching orally his disciples, and it wasn't written down immediately. It was written down some years later. So it begins orally. But then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through the means of the human authors, the oral teachings and stories were written down. And then these stories, these, these original writings, we must understand, are the what were without error. What Moses wrote, what Paul wrote, what all the other biblical authors wrote originally, we believe was fully true, fully accurate in all that they affirmed, without errors. The original writings were then copied by hand, since mechanical means of copying text, like the printing press, were not invented, of course, until many years later. So scribes were tasked with the precise and meticulous job of copying the biblical text. And unbelievable care was taken to preserve the accuracy of the text. But we must acknowledge and understand that this process was not without some errors. As time continued, more copies were made, and copies from those copies were made, and at some point, the original writings were either lost or destroyed, as the Museum of the Bible video powerfully depicted. Yet God, in his sovereignty, has faithfully preserved his word for us. As time progressed, more and more copies were made and translated into different languages, and as time marches on and the process continues to the present day, we are faced with the reality that none of the original writings are currently in existence. We only have copies. And the copies we have contain some minor variations. So we know that one or more of the copies contains errors because there's variations among them. (coughs) Excuse me. And this leaves us with the task of determining which copies are the most accurate representation of the original writings. Perhaps you've played the game of telephone before where one person whispers something into someone's ear and then it goes on and on around the circle. Comes back around and you end up with something very different than what you started with, right? Well, imagine with me for a moment that Pastor Cody has written a a page-long letter 
to everyone at Maranatha Church family. But instead of using our copy machine or emailing it out to everyone, he decides to, it's best to go old school. And he gives everyone a pencil and a piece of paper so that we can all have our own to make a copy of. Since some of us are used to typing and haven't held a pencil in uh, over a year, it's this tedious process. It takes some time. And so imagine that it starts over here in this section. <clears throat> the first people start making their copy, and it's taken some time. Once they finish, then the next people start making their copy, and maybe even the people who made their first copy, they pass their copy on to someone else to make a copy from, so more people can be working at the same time. And as part of this process, a little ways in, I get, my, I get the copy, the original copy from Cody, and I take it home so I can do it at home. <clears throat> and I accidentally spill some, some of the baking grease from my breakfast on Cody's original. So now, that's not, you know, so bad in and of itself. It's stained up a little bit, but you can still read it. But what, it, what makes this situation quite tragic is that then our dog Gideon ends up eating the original manuscript of Cody's letter. <clears throat> and I am not offering to try and retrieve it, okay? It's gone. Say goodbye to the original copy. Now, fortunately, several people have already completed their copies, so that's what we're going to go off from now. And so it gets passed on to the rest of this section, and then this section gets to start making their copies. They make the copies from their copies. You guys get to make your copies from their copies. And all the way over to this group. So you guys get to make your copies from theirs, which have come from theirs and theirs. So this, imagine this process with me. And, and at some degree, that's what we have with the scriptures. Our copies are being made. But understand this, that if this endeavor was done entirely dependent on human abilities and entirely void of God's divine superintending, it is easy to imagine an outcome that is quite similar to the game of telephone, where you guys over here are kind of, <clears throat> you might get half of it right because you're dependent on their copy, and they had some errors, and they might have had some errors. And so <clears throat> the further we get removed from the original, the more likely it is that there might be some errors in it, right? So this is kind of the, the, the foundation upon which we're going to unpack it a little bit further, but when it comes to the scriptures, however, it is abundantly clear that though there are minor textual variations among the existing copies of the Bible we have today, God has sovereignly preserved the accuracy of his word. And this is a truth that we must believe, understand, and hold very tightly. So in regards to the inerrancy of scripture, we believe that the original writings are without error. While we acknowledge honestly that our copies today are not without error. The next point I want to make related to the inerrancy of Scripture is this. This is point three under this section of inerrancy. <clears throat> the manuscript evidence for the New Testament gives us phenomenal reasons to trust the Bible as the accurate word of God. And as I was writing this, I was trying to decide which adjective to use. And I picked phenomenal because I think it's one of the closest to what I believe is true about the manuscript evidence. That it, it doesn't just give us good or solid or strong or really strong. It gives us phenomenal reasons to trust the Bible as the accurate word of God. 
And once I began to understand this claim, I became very excited. My own confidence in the accuracy of the Word of God grew tremendously, especially during seminary when I began to understand this concept and the process that the Bible went through. If you haven't already experienced this, if you haven't studied this or been exposed to these things, I pray that today you would be amazed as well by how the New Testament stands in a league of its own when it comes to the manuscript evidence. Some of you might be asking yourself, a very good question, what is the manuscript evidence? And so let's begin by making that clear. The manuscript evidence for any work of ancient literature, including the Bible, is the evidence that helps us determine how accurately the word or the work has been transmitted throughout time. So in our imaginary scenario with Pastor Cody's letter to us, how accurately did it get transmitted from here all the way over to here? That's what has to do with the the manuscript evidence. The manuscript evidence for any ancient work of literature is built primarily upon three factors. First, how close in time are the existing copies, the earliest existing copies we have, to the originals. The closer in time frame, the better. The more confident, the more accurate they are likely to be. Second, factor is how many copies do we have in existence today if all of our dogs ate our copy except one person there's only one copy we don't have the original it may be accurate it may not be we really don't know with great certainty but if there's 400 copies that are in existence and there's only like three spelling errors among all of them then we can be pretty confident that that those copies are an accurate representation of pastor cody's original so the more copies the better the closer in time frame, the better. And thirdly, how consistent and accurate are those copies with each other? So again, if, the, if we have 400 copies and they are dramatically different um, and telling us incredibly different things and you compare it to each other, you're like, that's not even close to what I have, then we got a problem. It's, it's difficult to know, okay, what did Cody actually originally write? So those are the three factors. <clears throat> um, many of you have probably seen a chart like what's up on the screen before, but if you haven't, I want you to follow along closely as I try to explain why this matters and why the manuscript evidence can strengthen your confidence in the accuracy of the Bible. So we're going to compare three of the writings listed on the chart. If you can't read the details, just uh, listen closely along. So I'm going to go kind of quickly through this, but first we're going to look at Plato. So Plato his writing was originally written in this time frame, 427 to 347 B.C., The earliest copy that is in existence today is from 8900. If you do the math, this is what you get. 1,200 years between our earliest copies, the the oldest ones that we have, in comparison to when it was originally, the original writings of Plato. So 1,200 years, that's that's a big chunk of time. And this is the number of copies. So the number of manuscripts available are seven. So we only have seven to work with. And there's a huge chunk of time between the earliest one and when it was originally written. Now, most people believe that our copies of Plato's writings are accurate. Most of you have studied, maybe you were forced to, but you've read some of Plato's writings. You may not remember much. I don't remember a ton about Plato's writings, but most schools use that, and they believe that it's a pretty accurate representation of what was original. That's, we don't have a whole lot to go on, but, but that's what we believe. If you compare Plato to then Homer, let's jump down a bit. Homer, 900 B.C. is when it was written. 400 B.C. is the earliest copy. So now we're, we're much closer in time frame. Still, 500 years is a pretty big chunk of time, but it's much better. Again, we want closer time frame. So 500 years is better. 
where the big difference between Homer and Plato comes in is the number of manuscripts. 643 manuscripts that we have in existence today of Homer's Iliad compared to Plato's uh, writing with only seven copies. So the more copies we have, the more likely we are to believe that it is accurate. And I don't have this additional stat up there, but in terms of the accuracy and the agreement within those 643 copies, it's, I think, at 95%. There's like 95% accuracy within the copies, which is really good. I mean, there's only 5% of differences, and, and they're probably pretty minor differences. But now we compare it to the New Testament, and this is where we jump into an entirely different category. New Testament written between 80, 40 to 100 approximately. Earliest copies we have, 80, 125. So now we're talking 25 to 50 years. There were people still living, most likely, who could have disagreed if this was not an accurate representation of the originals, people could have debunked it. They could have said, no, that's, that's totally fake. That's not right. That's not accurate because the people were probably still living during that span of time and reading those writings. And so that is amazing. That is a huge difference. 25 to 50 year gap. Obviously, it'd be great if we had the original, but we don't. The 25 to 50 years is far better than any other work of ancient literature. All, all these works that people believe are trustworthy and true and accurate and dependable, and yet people want to undermine the confidence in the New Testament. And even greater confidence is based on the number of manuscripts, as you guys have already seen up here. About 5,700, just in the Greek alone, tw- like 19,000 in other languages. So 24, 25,000 manuscript copies that we have or portions of, of manuscripts of, of the New Testament. And the accuracy is 99 and a half. It's, it's less than 1% of, of variations within those texts. That is phenomenal. Like, it's hard to even explain and get your head around like how amazing that is and how much confidence we can have in the New Testament and the accuracy of it. So yes, there are some variations but we, we don't need to be fearful of that. We don't need to be afraid of that. We don't need to try to hide that reality because this whole process of textual criticism that is applied to all ancient works, in, in comparison, the New Testament is in an entirely league of its own. The other comparison that I do not, um, I already mentioned that, so is the 99% um, Accuracy, so less than 1%. So this, this evidence is truly phenomenal. The New Testament, as I said, stands in a league of its own when compared to other ancient literature. Even so, I understand that the reality that there have been errors or mistakes made in the process of the Bible being copied over the years, it can be very unsettling and it can be disturbing. If you did not know that before today, perhaps that makes you wonder if you can truly trust the Bible. So let me make several more points related to that possible concern you may have. My following comments are also drawn from the book Evangelical Convictions. It says, first, you, must, you may be wondering, how do I know when I'm reading something that is a textual variant? How do I know when I open this book, the Bible, up and I'm reading a textual variant? So I just randomly flipped open Second Chronicles, and, it, and there's a footnote that says, some Septuagint manuscripts or Hebrew, say Ammonites. So they have, that's, that is a textual variant right there. If you look at your footnotes and it says, you know, one Hebrew manuscript, most Hebrew manuscripts in the Septuagint and the Vulgate have Aram instead of a different word. Um, 
Okay, so when it says some manuscripts, other manuscripts, most manuscripts, if you have a footnote that says something, those are the, the, the minor textual variations that we have. And so you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew in order to understand those. If you study Greek and Hebrew, you can understand them much greater and dig into them. And you can make decisions for yourself of which variation you think is, is most accurate to the original. And there's, whole, there's a whole host of principles that are employed to determine that, um, and that's not just for Scripture, but for other ancient literature. So first, and we understand that. Second, the vast majority of those textual variants are irrelevant. And here's why. It's because they simply involve spelling differences or clear copying errors that the scribes made that don't actually affect the meaning of the text. Thirdly, it's helpful to understand that not more than 1% of the variants, okay, so less than 1% of the copies have differences. I mean, there's only, of all the words written, less than 1% of all those words written in the New Testament are there disagreement on. Of that 1%, less than 1% of all of those variants are actually affecting both the meaning of the text and are likely to be original. And this is where a lot of scholars, this is where they spend their time because it's, it's worth spending time on it. The other ones, no one really argues about or disagrees. Like, it doesn't really affect the meaning of the text, but, but there are you know, approximately 1% of the 1%. That's a pretty small amount that actually affect the, the, a different meaning, a, a different conclusion. But even so, and this is the fourth point, we can say with great certainty that no central Christian truth depends on a passage that is in any way in doubt. So the ones that are in doubt, they don't make a difference in terms of our core doctrinal beliefs as evangelical Christians. It's still, I think, very fascinating to study and understand and dig into it and kind of wrestle through, um, but it doesn't, it's not going to affect whether or not you go to heaven. <laughs> it's not going to affect whether or not you, you know how to follow after God and fight against sin and understand the role of the Holy Spirit in your life to help you in that. It doesn't affect those major things. It's related to more minor aspects. It's still, it's still worth studying. It's worth understanding. But it should not ever undermine our confidence in the accuracy and trustworthiness of God's word. I like how Dr. Ravi Zacharias summarizes this point. He says, in real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the documents, and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. And any non-Christian ancient literature scholar who is being honest I believe, will agree with that statement. Even if they're an atheist, agnostic, even if they hate Christians, hate the Bible, the facts are the facts. And you can't fight against that. We have great reason to have confidence. So if you've never studied this before or simply tuned out because this was too technical for you or you didn't understand what I was trying to explain, allow me to invite you to tune back in as I summarize the point. You and I can have great confidence in the accuracy of the Bibles that we hold in our hands today based upon the manuscript evidence that exists to support it. And now we're going to turn to the fourth and final point related to the 
inerrancy of Scripture. And this is the fourth point. The archaeological evidence that has and continues to be discovered, it gives us incredibly solid reasons to trust the Bible as the accurate Word of God. I'm a visual learner, and I'm sure some of you are as well, so it's time for a brief pictorial tour of 10 archaeological discoveries that support the claim that the Bible is the accurate Word of God. We don't have time to examine these in detail. Rather, my intent this morning is merely to compile a short list, and 10 is truly a very short list compared to what's out there as a small representation of the many incredible archaeological discoveries that have been made that strongly support and corroborate the biblical account. So first one on the list is the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was discovered in 1947 to 49. And the dots on this map along the west side of the Dead Sea show where the different caves were that they found it. And the next slide has some pictures of what these caves looked like. Uh, if you haven't read that story, I mean, it's super fascinating of the discovery of these. And it is, uh, it is phenomenal in, in what it does to give us greater confidence in our scriptures. Um, the, the vast um, breadth of what they found there and, and how they were preserved. I mean, it's a very arid, dry region. So these texts, these manuscripts were preserved incredibly well in these jars. And it was, just, it was an accidental discovery. Um, and then they started looking once the first ones were found, and over several years they found them. So this, it, it's, it's a discovery of very early manuscripts. They're some of the earliest ones that we've found. And again, the closer you get to the original, the more likely they are to be accurate. And that's what they do, is they help prove that there was very, very little variance in the manuscript transition. So we had copies that were much older, much, or I should say much more recent, closer to our time frame, like copies like over here in this section. We had those, but... We, we weren't f- as confident until the Dead Sea Scrolls that they were accurate. But then when we found some scroll, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are like, like generation one, generation two of copying, <laughs> you know, like early, early copies, and we compared this to these, we said that these copies were actually very, very accurate still. So it gave us confidence in the whole gamut of the copies that were made. Again, I've got to try and go fast because this is supposed to be a survey of these, but I get excited because there are so many exciting things about archaeology that support the Bible. Second one is Hezekiah's Tunnel in Jerusalem, discovered back in 1838. Second Kings 2020 talks about this, where Hezekiah, uh, the city of Jerusalem, was under siege, and, they were in, and uh, the Syrian army was trying to... Um, or they were, they were afraid they were going to be under siege by them soon, and so they, Hezekiah had his engineers dig this tunnel under the city of Jerusalem in order to bring the water from the, the Gihon Spring, I believe, to the other side of the, the city so that if they were under siege, they still had water into the city. And it ends up in the Pool of Siloam, which isn't on my list, but the Pool of Siloam more recently has been discovered as well. And they're very confident that they know the location of that. And that was the ending point of this tunnel. But they started on two ends. They didn't have all of the surveying tools that we have today. I've been out with Matt Schultz doing some surveying and watching him do his thing. And they didn't have all those fun gadgets, right? But they started on two ends, met in the middle, it's just phenomenal, amazing that it happened. But the, the biblical account records this, and you can go and walk through it today. Uh, and there's an inscription where they met in the middle that confirms that it was Hezekiah's tunnel. Number three, the House of David inscription. And this 
simply confirms that David, King David, was a literal person, and, and it goes through the dynasty of kings that he started and became known as the house of David. And so the next slide lists out on the top left um, there the list of eight kings that are listed there, confirming what the biblical, we already know from the Bible, but this confirms that. Number four is this amulet scroll, this, this little s- scroll, which was discovered in 1979, and this um, without fully unpacking it, it dis- what I'm going to say about it is that it discredits a theory of the, of the authorship of the Pentateuch that argues that there are these four different sources, that Moses didn't write the full Pentateuch. It was the JEDP theory of the Pentateuch. But this scroll, it, it debunks that. It discredits that because there's a quote from Deuteronomy that's found in the tomb from before the Babylonian captivity, which... If you want to dig into it more, I can give you links to go deeper into some of these things. I just want you to, to know that these are all confirming and giving us greater confidence, corroborating the biblical account. Number f- uh, five is the ossuary of Caiaphas, which is a, a bone box. Back in the day, that's what they did. They put your bones, once you've died, in a box. And then, I think on the next slide, there we go. You can see a little bit of writing maybe on the near side of there. It says Caiaphas. It has his name on there. And through this, it confirms everything we knew about Caiaphas. Number six is the broad wall of Hezekiah discovered in 1970. What this confirms for us or helps us understand is that Jerusalem was exactly the size that the Bible said it was. So the Bible is accurate not just in matters related to our salvation. That's what the sufficiency of Scripture gets at. It is sufficient to save us, and we'll get to that in a moment, but what the inerrancy of Scripture says is that it is accurate in everything that it affirms, even measurements and details uh, like this. Number seven is the tomb of King Herod, which briefly just, it confirms Josephus' account of the paranoia that King Herod had that we read about in the Scriptures. Number eight is the Kirbet Kayafa inscription, which was discovered more recently in 2008. And this has a summary of the Mosaic Law, and it confirms that there was a king ruling during the time David lived. So again, the time frame matches up. Number nine is an inscription to Pontius, Pil- uh, to Pontius Pilate from 1961 is when we discovered this. And this confirms the biblical account of Pilate and his role. And then the last one I want to just mention, and this one I'll say just a little bit more about, it was Assyrian inscriptions post-ISIS. So in 2000, uh, so let me first by say, one, one of this, this discovery here is very recent, and it's an example to me of how something that humans intended for evil, God intended for good, or he brought good out of, Romans 8.28, right? And the story of Joseph and Genesis 50. When ISIS took control of the city of Mosul in Iraq in 2014, they began destroying and looting many of the ancient artifacts. And in the process, they, they dug tunnels underneath the city looking for artifacts that they could sell to buy weapons and cause havoc, right? Once ISIS was defeated in 2017, archaeologists were able to explore new areas that had been uncovered because of the tunnels that ISIS had dug Previously, there were some sacred sites, and they didn't, they didn't allow archaeologists even into those sites because they were holy sites, and so they didn't want them to go in and, and disturb things. There were, there were tombs and things, that, and so we didn't know for sure what was there, but 
because it had already been opened up and access was made in a very negative way, but now it also confirmed some very cool things. So in doing so, the archaeologists came across these inscriptions of Assyrian kings, and, and get this, all of the Assyrian kings mentioned in Esarhaddon's inscriptions are mentioned in the Bible, and it's in the same exact order as they're listed there. So this is a long list of Assyrian kings. So if the subject of biblical archaeologists archaeology, if it interests you like it interests me, know that this is barely the tip of the iceberg. Carmen loaned me a, a booklet that I was looking through in preparation for the sermon as well. It has 20 archaeological, archaeological discoveries that support the biblical account. And there are so many more fascinating discoveries that have been made, and, and more and more are continuing to be made that help provide a basis for our confidence in the accuracy of the Bible. So in examining the concept of the inerrancy of scriptures, we have seen that the original writings were without error. The copies we have today are not. But the combination of the manuscript evidence and the archaeological evidence give us incredibly strong reasons to trust the Bible to be the accurate word of God. Now that we've examined the inerrancy of the scriptures, let us turn our attention quite briefly to the sufficiency of scripture. On this part of our statement of faith, I want to make one singular point. The word of God accurately explains how God made a way for sinners like you and me to be saved and live in a right relationship with him. There are numerous things which scripture is not sufficient for. You can know the Bible very well, but if you don't have some mechanical knowledge and expertise, you will not find the Bible to be a sufficient manual for overhauling the engine on your truck or tractor, right? You need something beyond the Bible to help you figure that out, unless you're just a mechanical genius. You can read the story of Peter walking on water again and again, but that will likely not be sufficient to teach you how to barefoot water ski. Yet, even though Scripture does not address every single topic that we as Christians wrestle through, Scripture is full of wisdom and clear principles that will guide and instruct us in navigating difficult topics like the world refugee crisis and sexual orientation issues, battling pornography or drug addictions, finding freedom from anxiety and depression. The Bible is loaded with principles and wisdom and guidance that can help us in all areas of life. But our statement of faith articulates a firm belief in God's word being sufficient for salvation. In Luke 16, 29-30, we read the parable Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. And in that story, Abraham tells the rich man, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And Moses and the prophets represent the scriptures. And what this statement implies is that the scriptures are sufficient for salvation. We do not need miraculous interventions, including dead people coming back to life in order to be saved. The scriptures are enough. One other passage that confirms and supports the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture is in 2 Timothy 3.15, where Paul writes, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here we see Paul clearly stating that the scriptures are able to lead us to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells the good news of God's work in rescuing us from sin and death and showing us clearly how we can receive forgiveness through Christ and receive eternal life. 
Let me conclude with this. We tend to question the trustworthiness of the Bible. But brothers and sisters, friends and guests, we have such good and strong reasons to place our confidence and deep trust in the inspiration, authority, and accuracy of God's word. The point of the message today is that because the Bible is the accurate word of God, we can fully trust it. We can trust the word of God, and we can trust the God of the word. He is a good, loving Father who has graciously made himself known through his Son, the Word made flesh, and through his written Word, the Bible. The question I want to leave you with this morning is this, or questions. Do you trust God's Word? Do you believe it to be true? Are you submitting to its authority? Are you seeking to obey its commands? Are you allowing it to shape and change you into the person that God desires for you to be? Let us pray to that end. Almighty God, good heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a self-revealing God. You have made yourself known. You've made yourself known through general revelation, through, through nature itself, which points to you and your creativeness and your goodness, your glory, You've revealed yourself through special revelation, through Jesus coming to earth, taking on flesh, dwelling among us, living, breathing, eating, sleeping, teaching his disciples, training them in the ways of salvation and the ways of your kingdom. And you've orchestrated that process of the revelation you've made through scriptures themselves, the written word of God, so that we can come to know you, to study the word, that we come to know you and love you more and more. That is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing one more song of worship together.